three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a returning guest, Balibus. Uh, he, we've done a number of interviews together, particularly the most recent or last one was an investigation into Joe Rogan, uh, considering that he got paid $100 million to move to Spotify recently. I think he started September 1st, as a matter of fact. But tonight we're going to talk about another interesting character by the name of Forrest Ackerman. Some people may have heard of him or vaguely know him or, or science fiction buffs who know him very well. But he uh, had a very long storied career in Los Angeles. He lived in Los Feliz and he collected a bunch of uh, movie props and things like that. But he's, he's mostly influential for being a literary agent for many famous science fiction writers, uh, including Stephen King. L. Ron Hubbard, Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, just some of the these very well-known figures. So we're going to talk about him tonight. But Balibus, are you there? Yes, William. Thanks for having me back again. I've uh, been looking forward to this conversation. That's a excellent intro. I think unpacking the uh, Forrest J. Ackerman world of literary science fiction is a is something that no one's really looked into that much. I agree with that. You know, it's maybe it's known among certain movie people or things like that, but he had such an arc, his career in Los Angeles and around oh, all these people that uh, pretty remarkable figure, somebody who lived a long time as well, born in 1916 in L.A., died 2008. Uh, and so, I kind know, of look at him as the uh, the godfather of all science fiction, if you will. I think that you that's I think that's an apt description because he was involved in so many aspects of science fiction, not just. Uh, books, but also, you know, these uh, Pulp Fiction type novels and just all kinds of different stuff. Relevant film. Today. Yeah, relevant today. I think I read too about him. He was uh, in something like nine as a, you know, in ninety films as just like, uh, you know, a, a highlight in some of these films. But anyway, so who who was Forrest J. Ackerman for the public? Well, I'd like to jump into that, but real quick on, on your introduction, uh, again, great job. And I want to add a note on regarding Joe Rogan and and a quick little uh, segue into today's conversation. So in that Spotify deal, I'm not sure if you paid attention, William, since we recorded that conversation, I've since noticed that uh, Spotify decided to censor a good deal of Joe Rogan's episodes, notably anything with Alex Jones related from their system. Right, so they didn't even allow that to be uploaded to Spotify, right? Right, so if you go to Spotify, you will not find those episodes. For example, episode, I think it's 911, actually, with with uh, right. Alex Jones. It's not on there. So, And it's kind of funny, in this age of censorship, this is what we're seeing still. Pardon me. Um, the uh, And when I was saying it's kind of relative to today's conversation, and how Forrest Ackerman's relative to our modern era, despite him being dead for years now. Sorry about that. Please continue. No <laughs> the, uh, it's, the, it's the fact that, uh, you know, I was just quoting Ray Bradbury, you know, Forrest Ackerman uh, was the publisher of Bradbury's work and was just quoting Bradbury the other day in, in Fahrenheit 451 and saying that I remember when firefighters used to put out fires. Right. Fascinating. Yeah. The censorship and book burning of the dystopian world of Fahrenheit 451. Not all that dissimilar to uh, to our today's era, because I often like to joke that we're in a, if you were to draw a Venn diagram in three circles with the, the you are here in the middle, for those folks of the interwebs don't know who Venn diagrams are. I'm sure you do, William. Circles, uh, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, 
the so I put you put no I joke put yourself in the middle and then put one circle is 1984 the other circle is Fahrenheit 451 and the other circle is a brave new world and you're right in the middle 2020 right no it's very true and there's I give you more crazy dystopian elements because it's like things go into the memory hole right so you can throw in 1984's elements but also yeah. the fact that some of these like you're not told that you're being ghosted like my some of my YouTube channel, YouTube went in and broke down. They don't recommend any of my stuff anymore to somebody. They immediately put it on to like Fox News or something in the kind of if my show ends, it goes to Fox News. So there's all kinds of weird games they're playing without telling you. There's all kinds of strange, you know, elements yeah, with YouTube. I think the orders are delay, deter and deny any sort of person from seeing this information. In this instance, with Joe Rogan and Spotify, they denied it. They said we're not putting it on our on our system, and that again is very dystopian Ray Bradbury like. So, yeah. his publisher, Forrest J. Ackerman, is known throughout every literary circle as you know a very major figure. He's not maybe known publicly in like society and a pop culture reference or anything, but the guy is responsible from everything from monsters to aliens to you know Star Wars stuff to you know to comic books. I mean, the comic book era of today where our largest films in the movie theaters are Marvel Comics and DC tries to keep up sometimes. Those two comic books grew out of this literary club. So, right. It's it's incredible. And I think what was the name of his literary club? Do you rec I think it was called um I do have the name. It's the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society, right? There you go. Yeah. That was yep. the weekly thing. Okay. And so Hubbard was there, but also Jack Parsons. My understanding is that Jack Parsons was also somebody who attended in the audience, who is, you know, associated with Crowley. So you've got these two Crowley figures that we know well, of. Yeah, you're, that's a great point, William. And, on, and to just go on top and add some additional information there on top of that point is the fact that if you just listen to Forrest Ackerman himself, he tells you the entire club dabbled in that kind of activity, he says. Right. He says, the earth, so... A lot of people know Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology today, but back in the early onset of Scientology, it went through a couple of different iterations. Right. And in one of those iterations, the the first one, you know, Ackerman says himself, they all joined Scientology, re referencing the literary, you know, the science fantasy society. Right. And that's the context of, of the statement. And, you know, I often wonder if that jump to Scientology at that time in the mid-1950s Early nineteen, maybe. Well, I think we'll call it nineteen fifty-four, maybe. Well, I think I think that Dianetics was forty-eight, and then Scientology was nineteen fifty. But Hubbard himself was writing tons of science fiction going back right. to the thirties, right? Oh, I mean, he's one of the most printed science fiction authors in history. Just let a science go into any Scientology center, they'll tell you that. Right. I've been into a few of them. They'll they'll be more than happy to to tell you all about L. Ron Hubbard. Just, sci-fi path as long as well as his you know his writing achievements as well as the other stuff but the my the 1954 reference i was i was putting a marker on that day is because i think that's the time when they saw that first iteration so as you said kind of 47 48 was the onset of scientology as being something or sorry dianetics and then he toured the country was trying to sell dianetics and found out that that's gotta pay taxes l ron hubbard that is has to pay taxes and all these other things so he started making changes putting out fires as they were coming along in this little process to create Scientology. And in those early iterations, the entire literary society here of the science fiction society of Forrest J. Ackerman was apparently a member. 
Now, I just wonder if there if it was an easy jump for them because they were all Thelemites, like we're um, OTO or Thelemites, where L. Ron Hubbard came from and Jack Parsons, and they just kind of you know they just jumped over like, well, Hubbard's doing this new thing, so we'll go do this new thing with Hubbard. Right. It's really fascinating too, and also I think it was Robert Heinlein, stranger from a, in a strange land. I think he was in that group or somewhere around. I don't know if he was uh, author or, or was the literary agent that Ackerman was his literary agent, but he was definitely in that circle. And apparently there's a lot of Thelema, Thelema in Stranger in a Strange Land. And that was the only book that Manson would let his family read. You know that? Oh, I, I well, I did not know that fact, actually. And that's, that's a nice Charles Manson fact. From, and I'm actually a big student of the Charles Manson story. Yeah, I'm familiar with that book though. Yeah, I'm familiar with that yeah. book. I just didn't know that was. Uh, I think he, uh, if he wasn't in that club, he's definitely in that same group of people. No question. He wasn't yeah. Present no for Asimov, Highline. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure you're right. I, I, I don't have the exact list in front of me, but I'm, I'm fairly certain he was in that club. There are a number of interesting characters outside of just yeah. Elron Hubbard in, in in that club, and you know Ray Bradbury may be one of the most popularly known ones. Isaac Asimov as well but there's a there, the number of intelligence agents in that in that uh little club is, is quite astounding well, first of all l ron hubbard's uh uh college roommate was a one of these individuals named the science fiction writer by the name of he wrote under the name cordoner smith hmm. um his real name was paul linebarger he was a u.s army officer an OSS officer in World War II who literally wrote the book on psychological warfare. It's called Really? Wow. It's called Psychological Warfare. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, Psychological Warfare, a World War II era reprint. You can go find it at your local library or bookstore today or Kindle for three ninety nine. Wow. Um, not, not a plug for Amazon. I'm just being facetious. But yeah, so the guy literally first published in nineteen forty eight. This is a guy in that group. Now, no one at the time, I don't think, contemporaneously knew that he was Corbin Smith, but the guys in the club did, right? Right. The science fiction club most certainly would have known that. I think so. And, I, I, I can confirm that Heinlein was in, in, in Ackerman's group, so you can right. include Heinlein yeah. in that group. So. Oh, my, I've ensured that I put him near the top of the list because I need to know more about that character because I'm familiar with the book and I'm familiar with some of the other characters in the club, but I... Yeah, this club is something I've been kind of looking at for a while, and I've just I've said to myself, why is nobody questioning this? Right. <laughs> why know? isn't there a book on that? Because I didn't come across anything on that. It's so influential, the science fiction that came out of the comic books and all that stuff. Oh, and yeah. The, and the mind control, because that the psychological operations, I mean, don't you think all that stuff bled into Dianetics and Scientology? Oh. I, I was going to ask you the same question. If you want my opinion first, I'd say absolutely. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, look at a Scientology operation. Look at some of the, it just, the, I mean, to be honest with you, I've gone into a number of these visitors, centers, uh, orgs, they call them or whatever. Everyone in there just kind of, they kind of have a mind control look on their face, if you ask me. It's like going to a reference from my world, a basic training organization, you know, going to see uh, military troops in basic training. They all kind of have a mind control look on their face because, I mean, in a certain aspect, it is mind control. Yeah, I mean, definitely sociological testing. Yeah, you all get a haircut. Everybody gets the same haircut. You get that psychological test. There's something wrong with you. The solution is Mm -hmm. Scientology. And then you go out and then you become an acolyte, like an evangelist for it. And you get paid. It's all, it's just really crazy. 
Yeah, I mean, and L. Ron Hubbard being a naval officer certainly used a lot of his knowledge from his military experiences in the construction of his little organization known as Scientology. But at the same time, like, it's kind of strange to me that it is so much like a military organization. Yeah, I mean, it really is a military organization. They likened themselves into the Jesuits. When I talked to one of the bigwigs in Scientology, who knew Hubbard, I actually have him interviewed on William Ramsey Investigates. Yeah, I can't remember his name right now. He's actually in that same show with Forrest Ackerman. Because uh, you know the video of Forrest Ackerman where it's people who knew L. Ron Hubbard? Yeah, Jerry yeah. Jerry Armstrong was his name. Jerry he said they were like, the, yeah, Jerry, yeah, G-E-R-R-Y is in William yeah, Ramsey. That's good. But he um, he said that they were they likened themselves to the Jesuits, like a Jesuitical oh. order. Or the org, the sea org was like the Jesuits. I'm shocked, William. This is, this is, as much as I've uh, studied Scientology as well in the process, I've never heard or seen that statement, so I'm, I'm excited to see that because that's exactly how I view them. I mean, I view them as a military organization. I actually think they're one of the most uh, you know, cunning intelligence operations I've ever seen. Well, it became, and there's like an intel, and that's the whole thing about how, you know, have you ever heard the story that Hubbard's World War II um, uh, service record is fake? Have you ever heard that? You know, I have heard that, and uh, you know, I you know, I can I can understand the arguments put forth on both sides. I'd like to get your your uh, opinion on it. Well, uh, gosh, I I think that some of his stuff may be faked because if you look at some of the early pictures of Hubbard, he thought of himself as like an intel officer. There's pictures of him with a fedora, looking very kind of uh, intel like, right. and all that stuff bled into. Scientology, and I, I heard that those connections were still there, and he actually ran his organization, certain parts of it. He had his own intel organization in Scientology, right? Oh, oh so yeah. Does. And I'm not surprised by any of your assessment, because he definitely told a lot of stories. So his college roommate, Corbiner Smith, a.k.a. Paul Linebarger, the OSS officer for uh-huh. the U.S. Army, he was the one. Uh, Hubbard stole a lot of his biography and told everybody he was fluent in like eight languages and had like seven degrees. Those were Paul Linebarger stats. Those were L. Ron Hubbard stats. So he definitely told a lot of stories. So I think you're definitely onto something there. And, well, and yeah, I think they, was, they have, yeah. uh, I mean, East German Stasi style, you know, uh, SS officer style operation because they ran an entire operation on the U.S. government called right. Operation Snow White in the yes. 1970s. This is ultimately how David Miscavige, the current leader of Scientology, got into power. Right. And I mean, I think that the so the person who I recollect who said that Hubbard's history was uh, fake was Fletcher Prudy, the author of The Secret Team, a guy who was oh, know, yeah. a researcher into the murder of JFK. But the, the, yeah, the video that uh, both Ackerman and Jerry Armstrong are in is called Secret Lives. And it was from Channel 4 from 1997. So you can see both Ackerman talk and um, and Armstrong. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, you're fine. The, uh, the, um, whatchamacallit, the, we can put a link there on that. I'm looking up right now. Secret Lives. Yeah. Secret Lives is the name of it. And it's on YouTube. Oh, yes. I see that. I got it right here. Oh, L. Ron Hubbard's assistant. Yeah. I mean, these are the people that I suspect have the most knowledge of what's actually going on in that organization. Um, one of my favorite things to watch just relative to Scientology is when David Miscavige made his almost only public interview ever. And that's with, um, uh, Ted Koppel on, I think it was Nightline, is it? 
and uh, it was maybe 1992 or so, and he tries to out uh, out Koppel, Ted Koppel, as far as te- you know. He's right. he's, at one point in time, you have to wonder who's the uh, who's interviewing who here, because David Miscavige is obviously not enjoying the interview. Wow, interesting. So yeah, I have a lot of questions about that organization, and, and again, they they the uh, origins of that are found in Forrest Ackerman Literary Club, where the entire club, apparently, according to Forrest Ackerman. Was uh was a member, wow yeah in the early stages, and then yeah it makes you wonder if that goes back to Palima because as you pointed out, Jack Parsons was present and that is a supposedly a known well that, that's how he met Hubbard I think was through going to these science fiction um, meetings so I think that that's where that's the whole yeah. history started where they were together or they were in Pasadena at the Cult of Philema or whatever. What was it? Uh, they called it Agape Lodge and all that stuff. Agape Lodge of the OTO, correct? The Ordo Templi Orientis? Yes, correct. So um, there's another story that L. Ron Hubbard liked to tell was that he was an undercover FBI agent sent into that organization. Right. That's the cover story. And he actually, there's an article saying they he thought and knew that they were engaged in black magic, but he was an intel person there to investigate which might be partially true. I suspect it is partially true, and this is why. There's a loads of declassified information regarding a number of agencies investigating Jack Parsons' activities between the years of 1947, I think whenever he allegedly blew himself up in his garage in 1951. Right. So he had a lot of heat during that time, a lot of different agencies investigating him for a lot of different things. And it was the early onset of the communists' McCarthy right. hearings. So at that same time, people like Ronald Reagan were already undercover for the FBI in Hollywood. Yeah, so, so he was he was got he got popped because he was actually living. Parsons was living after the war, I think, in Redondo Beach of all places, and then he went. Um, he took some information and gave it to an Israeli agent, or he was there was the possibility that some of his jet tech, uh, technological stuff was leaked or given or he was going to work for an Israeli agent. And so all those records are there. And it's kind of funny because, or amusing darkly, because in those FBI files you mentioned, he's clearly running circles around the FBI agent. They call his group Thelma, like the name Thelma, right. not Thelema. And they, oh. they, they, they kind of got into it, but he said he was done with it to the FBI. He was still heavily involved in occultism and all kinds of stuff. I think that the Babylon working was somewhere in late 40s, you know, after the war. So he was doing the Babylon working with Hubbard and he was he made the oath of the Antichrist and left that. So he was still heavily involved in occultism, Uh, but the the FBI didn't really key into it. So he was clearly uh, outwitting them, I think. No, I think that's a great assessment. He was playing both sides against the middle. It seems pretty clear, like you said, he was he was playing the FBI while well, allegedly working, you know, for them in that operation. Yeah, I mean, there certainly has the hallmarks of exactly, yeah, exactly how you just described it. Yeah, and uh, again, that that whole group, though, I mean, you, it's never just one person in that group because you start going down the line, and there was a fellow by the name of Kurt Sadamak, and, and he was a science fiction writer, very popular at the time, movies, motion pictures, you know, all the whole works, everything science fiction, and he was uh, he was an OSS officer in World War II. So again, this is immediately following the war too. So, you know, you have a whole bunch of these these guys sitting in one literary group in 
in, you know, essentially, I don't know if it was in Pasadena, but Los Angeles. And, you know, they have a very interesting, uh, you know, you know, lineage that runs again to today because the next guy you have in there is Isaac Asimov. And Isaac Asimov, well, actually, one more note on Kurt, one, one thing I just remembered on Kurt Sciotomax. So the, he got he got recruited into the OSS. He was already a science fiction writer. When he got recruited into the OSS, he wrote a book called Donovan's Brain. And on your note to how uh, L. Ron Hubbard was kind of playing the FBI at times, it seems, and other folks for that matter, well, the OSS tracked down the author of this book called Donovan's Brain, and, and they thought it was about, you know, it was a book about mind control, and they thought somehow this was some, somehow related to the guy who just started the OSS, uh, William S. Donovan. So to their inept abilities to accomplish anything effective, they went and recruited this guy because they thought somehow this guy's fiction novel called Donovan's Brain about mind control had something to do with their boss. Um, that's a true story, by the way. <laughs> I don't, I, you know, <laughs> to speak to the ineptness of some of these, uh, some of these operations and investigations. Gee, just to let you know, this uh, fantasy society, the LASFS, still exists, and it's in the valley off of Burbank Boulevard. Oh, interesting. Uh, nice. My studio city, kind of close to Universal Studios. Closer. Yeah, I'm, I'm not at all too surprised. It's like this. They seem to have a, a pretty a healthy fan club, fan base amongst this crowd. And I mean, just look at Isaac Asimov. You know, he, he's still considered a very much today a very uh, uh, notable person within science fiction writing, especially. You know, I don't, and I don't know if Isaac Asimov, I don't know if he was involved in these type of dealings. But as far as how this club still connects to today, Isaac Asimov. Jr. I think it was his name, his son, Isaac Asimov Jr. And he uh, just uh, about 20 years ago in the 90s in uh, the San Francisco area got uh, arrested with the largest uh, collection of child pornography in history, at least at the time. And uh, thanks to folks like the U.S. attorney in the district, Robert Mueller of recent FBI and and, uh, and uh, Russia investigation fame, Infamy. Uh, in, in, infamy. Yeah, yeah, it was a good, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you read my mind. Infamy is what I meant there. You're right. <laughs> uh, you know, that guy let him off. You know, I don't know how you you can decide that somebody such as that. They, William, this is how disturbing it is. And if you read the investigation notes and the documents available, they identified at least hundreds of children in the, in the uh, photography and videos, if not thousands. And Robert Mueller said, pass. So, you know, th this group, despite it starting, you know, close to 100 years ago, and because uh, <laughs> these guys were obviously writing before the World, World War II, this was, this was a group that existed before Hubbard joined it, obviously. Hubbard kind of came in there after the war, though, and as Forrest J. Ackerman, the group's leader, says, he kind of took it over. Like, everyone was kind of enamored by L. Ron Hubbard. Because the, like I said, so a lot of the comic book stuff and the science fiction from that, you know, came back before the war. And I think L. Ron Hubbard, if I remember correctly, in that interview we referenced before with um, Forrest Ackerman talking about L. Ron Hubbard, he discusses how um, he met Hubbard. But he, I think he also touches base that Hubbard had previously sent him materials before. He just didn't look at it or something like that, you know, because I believe for a while Hubbard was on maybe the East Coast. Uh, before the war, when he got sent to San Diego, I believe. Wow. I mean, 
mean, what and what's what's Asimov's most famous writing? Isn't there one that he's really? Um, you know, he's definitely in that same ballpark with Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke. I think they're yeah, they're considered some of the the uh, original, you know, spaceships and you know, science fiction guys. What is it? Granted, Jules Verne existed before then. There was one. There was one series of books my friends used to read. I can't remember the name. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't. I'm, I'm looking it up right as we speak now. I, I couldn't honestly tell you. Foundation, Foundation series. I think that's that was 1951. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not at all familiar with Isaac Asimov's writings. I mean, I'm familiar with him and some of what he's accomplished. He's often credited with like. Um, he's kind of actually credited with inventing the rocket. I think. I don't. You know. Asimov. I know. There's, yeah. Yeah. I think I'm a no for for sure that. Uh, Parsons was involved in that, but Asimov was like a, he was also kind of a biochemist. I think he was a professor of biochemistry at the time, man. The guy was super, um, super prolific. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I think his son was living off of his father's uh, inheritance, basically his his proceeds for some of those activities when he uh, collected the uh, America's largest child porn collection incredible but did you ever see a connection between ackerman and arthur c clark because i thought that clark was clark had was connected to ackerman and, and clark was really something else too. no I, I don't know if arthur c clark i haven't seen any direct connection but yes isaac as we're, as we're talking here so um heinlein the one you mentioned his name before he wrote starship troopers along with isomoff and arthur c clark right. they're all they were all in, involved in that project Fascinating. Yeah. So these guys, I mean, this I is just, these guys are huge. as the writer, but they were all, they were all in a group together hanging out, like when he wrote that. Well, did you, did you hear rumors of Ackerman? There was something, I think it was on Wikipedia that he was sending uh, nasty, uh, sexually graphic letters to underage children. Do you ever come across that? Oh, I've heard lots of rumors about Ackerman. I haven't seen anything with as much, uh, Certainty is Arthur C. Clarke. Didn't he get banished to India or something? No, Clarke went to Sri Lanka, and oh, then yeah. I know for a fact that there was a suppressed article about him uh, picking up twelve-year-old boys at the oh, local yeah. ping pong club, which I yeah, included in my for... book, *Children of the Beast*. Yeah, but then oh, you follow, if you, yeah, if you follow Clarke, you follow Clarke right to. That major book, I'm sorry, that major book, *Children of the Beast*. Correct. I didn't know you went. I, I haven't read it. I apologize for, for having so many questions. This late in conversations we've had, William, about reading that book um, in regards to my interest of Thelema specifically. I just didn't realize you went that deep in it, I guess. Oh, no. You know, Clark, he knew all the illuminated numerology, 77, 11. He included all that stuff with Kubrick and him connected to Ackerman. It's just an incredible arc of uh, influence. And I mean, right? if, you read, if you read Clark's stuff, it's pretty clear he knows. All that illuminated, and the monolith itself was um, something that he created. They were. Do you know that in 2001, Clark and Kubrick were going to use the cube of Saturn, and they changed it to the monolith for that important scene? I, I think I actually heard heard or read something that you wrote or said that yeah, from that fact. Yeah, that was. I looked that up. It was interesting. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that occult. After after hearing that, I, I looked into it further. I think yeah, I agree. There's a lot of occult uh, symbolism. And, think, and especially in that movie, specifically. No, you, yeah, oh, tons of cult symbolism, but the dates and stuff in his works and in his stuff, and they, like the new moon was called Lucifer, 
and its light will shine on the earth forever. I mean, this guy's talking about like high-level, hyper-intelligent Luciferianism. Clark was. Right. And I mean, there's, as you said, there's, and I agree here as well, there's, there's a number of reports with him uh, in young boys that uh, eventually caused him to be basically, folks in the United Kingdom are basically like, look, Arthur, you're going to need to go find some other place to live, like in uh, Sri Lanka. They'll let you do things with young boys there, apparently. There's a direct quote that I have of him that he said to a reporter that it's not a big deal. I just pay them a little bit, right. and that's it. You know, he basically admitted that that was, that was his thing. Right, and it's kind of disturbing to think about it. I laugh from an ironic standpoint that we don't catch on to these things quicker as a society or as people, generally speaking, that we don't listen to the words these people say. He's going to admit it, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm happy to take the man at his word. Well, you know, I, th- I think that a lot of it is these other media figures there. The journalists don't look into these things. They don't think they're important. And they they, they uh, aren't willing to contradict famous people or challenge them. I think that that's, that's the, what's been going on for decades. Sure. So in reference to Asimov, Heinlein, um, Arthur C. Clarke, and the literary club of Forrest J. Ackerman, you know, the um, – and Parsons' presence in that club as well at times. So Parsons, I mean, and, and Hubbard didn't seem to have any qualms about telling everybody in the world that they invented uh, solid-state rocket fuel via a uh, you know, thalemic sex magic ritual in the uh, in the California desert, correct? Is that, is that a good assessment? Well, I think he was influenced by occultism to, to make certain stuff for sure, whether it came to him in some kind of occult ritual. I don't know. I've never heard Well, that. I think... Oh, I think, yeah, I think specifically, uh, and I'll have to see if I can dig up the, the statements from, from Parsons. He makes no qualms about it. He, he's not a chemist. He didn't go to university, and he developed solid-state rocket fuel via sex magic rituals of Thelema in the California desert. And, you know, uh, if you look at what this club's business is, it's a lot of science fiction guys, you know, and they're all interested in kind of the same subject. I oftentimes wonder... What really is the organizing principle here? Good point. That's interesting. So, and uh, on down the line of people that I wanted to discuss with you, more in a modern sense from this club, bringing it more to our current era, you know, and again, psychological operations. There's, um, uh, I just drew a blank on his name. Oh, Michael Aquino, the the uh, colonel from the army, the U.S. Army Colonel Michael Aquino, who again and now. World War II, it was Paul Linebarger, who was the U.S. Army psychological operations expert. In Vietnam War, though, it was Michael Aquino. Interesting. And Michael Aquino wrote Star Wars fan fiction for Forrest J. Ackerman. I didn't know that. I didn't know oh, that. I, I, I think he actually published it. Yeah, I mean, he definitely harassed Forrest Ackerman about it. You can find Forrest Ackerman talking about that, how he's always tracking him down, trying to give him more, uh, you know, more work. Was did he write it under his own name, name or a pen name, a pseudonym? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, it was probably. I mean, if I usually think about, it, it's probably a, a uh, pseudonym. But I don't think Forrest Ackerman mentions it in the interview that I watched. Interesting. But if, wasn't uh, there a connection between Ackerman and Levey as well, or was it just Aquino? Um, I don't know a, a direct connection off the top of my head between LeVay and Ackerman, but yeah, definitely LeVay and Ke- Aquino. I mean, Aquino's organization is a offshoot, correct, of LeVay's? 
Yes, that is true. Yeah, and I don't know if LaVey officially identifies his organization to be an offshoot of Salima Rotio, but he recognizes it in like a um, honorary fashion, if you will. Interesting. So, so LaVey was friends with Ackerman. So they were, they were, there's actually pictures of them together. So I don't oh, know I if he was, yeah, I don't know. I'll put it in the show notes. I'm going to send it to you right now, but. Uh, I mean, I'm not surprised because uh, Anton LaVey was very, very connected into Hollywood in the LA region. For example, right. if you open up the front page of his quote unquote, I don't know, what do they call it? The Bible? I don't know, whatever they call it. The Satanic Bible or whatever? Yeah, whatever they call that thing. Mm-hmm. If you open it up, he dedicates it to two people Jane Mansfield, who was decapitated somewhere in some, what, about 1965, right. and uh, in some weird automobile accident. And uh, the other individual he dedicated to is Tuesday Weld, the actress. Fascinating. And she was like notoriously to be a, from a witchcraft family, right? Oh, so, well, yeah, supposedly. And she even took it to a new level trying to make a joke about that in the 70s and wearing like a witch hat on TV because she, you know, it was a kind of a common rumor that was often traveling around at the time. And uh, also in the 1970s, in a magazine, I think, called Modern Witchcraft, um, Anton LaVey is quoted as saying that he. Uh, that he dedicated it to uh, Tuesday Weld because she's involved in the rituals. I think it didn't was go into con- Gallen, didn't right? go into context, but but I, I couldn't hear you, William. The illusion. Oh, I was just saying that I think Dave McGowan. I think that's where I remember my Weld references from Dave McGowan. Oh, he definitely went into to that story for sure. Yep, yep. Um, there's some other information out there regarding uh, Tuesday Weld, but. Uh, the uh, I actually think the the quote I just mentioned about uh, being involved in the rituals I actually read in a book called Give me a moment Sinister Forces by Peter Lavenda. Uh huh. The series is a three part series. Yeah. Three part series. One of them is strictly about Manson for the I mean for the most part. One of them is the, kind of the the ghost yard of America and kind of deals with the uh, ancient architecture of the mounds. The uh, quote-unquote Indian burial mounds, which is an interest of mine. That's a real focus of number one. I think number two is the Manson situation. I, number three. So I think it was in number one, maybe. He actually, Lavenda goes into some of that witchcraft hif- history of the Weld family and the history of, you know, the witchcraft. I mean, the whole the whole ongoing plot of the first uh, novel is America's got a lengthy and extensive witchcraft history that we just pay no attention to. Yeah, I would agree with and, but I, yeah. I think you, I'm sorry. Continue. I think uh, Lavenda himself, though, right? He, I mean, I know he's not a science fiction writer per se, and he's not in this group that I have any kind of knowledge of. But he, uh, he's definitely in that same milieu of uh, occult activities, right? No question. Yeah, he worked at the Magical Child in New York. He was part of all these early or well, 1970s, 1980s conflicts within the occult community. He wrote the Necronomicon, probably more than likely wrote the Necronomicon under a fake right, name. Right, right, and then, and then signed it his name. I mean, there's a document. If it's legit, that means that he applied to have the copyright at the, co- the U.S. Copyright Office for the Necronomicon, which is not a real book. It was based upon H.P. Lovecraft, and so he just made a real book. Out, you know, made a book out of something sure. that was. 
science fiction, if you want to call Lovecraft science fiction or horror. But uh, yeah, and if you if you want to hear someone squir- like kind of squirm in their chair during an interview just over a podcast, listen to a Peter Lavenda answer the question on whether or not he wrote the Necronomicon. <laughs> Can almost there, hear there is an audio of him being interviewed on one of these shows, you know, on. Uh, I forgot, Coast to Coast, I think it is, and it's clearly, it's supposedly Simon, but it's a voice, the voice has been changed, and it sounds, some people have said it's pretty much Lavenda, so. Right, right. I, I know, I, I'm actually very familiar with what you're talking about, and uh, I would agree with you, that is Lavenda, yeah. But so in Lavenda, Ackerman, not... But it's incredible, to Ackerman is tied to L. Ron Hubbard, he's tied to Jack Parsons, he's tied to LeVay, he's tied to Aquino. It's tied to all of these kind of, you know, dark yeah. the greatest science fiction writers of the era are as a result an associate of Forrest Ackerman in his club. Yeah, and, uh, you know, including again, I, it's a lot more, more so speculation than anything else. But I think a lot of that same club who some members were, um, definitely associated with the production of the comic book scene. Um, going the comic books in the 1930s, around 1932 or so, uh, trans the science fiction field. These same guys were writing science fiction. They were the ones who were also producing the comic books of that area, the, the pulp fiction comic book uh, stuff, the, the early onset before Marvel and DC. And uh, the uh, I uh, and the uh, the um, the uh, well, oh the oh yeah the so the um, the comic books kind of grew out of that same club too and you got to look these are some of the most profitable um, films we have today right I mean they're uh, these series the you know Batman and all these things came out of that well, stuff. I think, yeah I think Avengers Endgame was the largest grossing film ever. I mean, in, in, if you look at it in a very um, kind of, again, there are characters that are involved in that process that are most certainly part of the Forrest Ackerman Club, and their Forrest Ackerman and gang are again, it's the same people who did who do the comics and the and then the science fiction at the time, all the rockets and space and aliens, all those things, the alien invader type of things. And Ackerman himself, he was a collector of all this stuff, so he was collecting memorabilia movie memorabilia, comic book memorabilia, and actually had a museum. I think it was in his house in uh, Las Feliz in L.A. people yeah. used to go. But yeah, I think right. it was it was all auctioned off. And one of oh, the big, what? yeah, one of the big purchasers was Peter Jackson of West Memphis 3 Infamy. Oh, a uh, wow. big supporter of Damien Eccles, yes. I did not know that. Always some new facts talking to you, William. That's a good one right there. Yeah, the more I learn about William, uh, more, more I learn about Peter Jackson, I definitely question. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of you questions know. there. Yeah, there's a lot of questions. I heard his wife is, uh, I mean, there's rumors about his wife being heavily involved in the occult, but those are rumors only. Well, I mean, I I'm not a Lord of the Rings Hobbit type of guy, but uh, those scream like some sort of occult type of undertones to me. I don't know the specifics of what they would be because I've never seen would know to know how to decipher it to analyze or anything but i'm just saying that whole underworld kind of situation they have going there it's almost like a story under society kind of like how occult the occult operates i don't know maybe i'm going too far there but i have a lot of questions about the after reading your material in the west memphis three and learning about 
the uh, his activities essentially financing murders of children to, to get out of prison, then uh, yeah, I have a lot of questions about the guy. Yeah, there's a lot of questions there. He has, uh, I think it was um, Ken Ami, one of my fellow researchers, found a picture of uh, Peter Jackson with an occult tattoo that was designed by Damien Eccles. Oh, these are tattoos. Yeah, what he's is got those on? tattoos, the same ones Johnny Depp and all these other yeah. characters have. I didn't know Peter Jackson had that one too, huh? Very similar. It's with the whole sigil on the inside and the Theban script on the outside, a circle. Right. Well, I mean, so you look at the Marvel Comics situation, and again, Peter Jackson, that's a huge connection as far as, you know, the, his uh, his weight in the film industry. Yeah. And, uh, and again, the Marvel movies, these are the you know, biggest movies, DC, same thing. And if you look and see that... Um, where this originated from and kind of the group it came from, it's—I don't think it's that hard of a uh, big of a jump to start uh, asking more questions on why is it called Marvel Comics? Is it a tribute to Marvel Parsons, Jack Parsons? Because DC Comics decided to name their big group the Suicide Squad, right? And Suicide Squad is Jack Parsons' club. Yeah, a very well-known fact. Yes. So I, these are the questions I ask her. What is the actual connection there? And again, it's not direct. It's not. Uh, there's not a great uh, uh, print record, if you will, and no one's writing down notes. Me, Jack Parsons, and all these other guys all did this right here, right at this time, you know. But there is definitely enough information there to cast. Uh, you know, there's well, there's smoke. You know, typically where there's smoke, there's fire. And uh, one of those other things connected there was drawing to the current day in our modern era of, you know, situations in our society with occult aspects and occult groups, Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. These people have direct connections to these literary people we were just discussing in the um, Jack Parsons squad, if you will. So uh, Jack, one, of Jack, one of Jack Parsons' uh, uh, his top assistant or partner in the suicide squad that developed uh, solid-state rocket fuel was a man by the name of the Roger or Frank Molina. Frank Molina. And Frank Molina. And then Roger's the son who's married to Ghislaine Maxwell's sister, who Roger Ghislaine and Roger's wife, Ghislaine's sister, made one of the early search engines for the internet. Right. So they were involved in technology. But the Suicide Squad was only three people. It was Foreman, Molina, and Parsons. So yeah, I think I think it, in direct order, Molina was number two in that sequence. So yeah, you're right. It's a very he's a very important man in the story. Yeah, Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very important, critical. There's pictures of them together: Parsons, Molina, Foreman. Oh yeah. All down at the Arroyo in in Pasadena, where they used to test so, all the rockets and stuff. Yeah, and that's and that's allegedly again how that solid state rocket fuel was developed. With those three guys, actually, I think at one point in time they added a fourth one later, a Chinese fellow, and then the uh, U.S. government later shipped him to China, and that's how China got their space program. Probably a different story altogether. Not surprised at all. <laughs> right, right. I mean, the other kicker is these guys are like uh, Parsons is sending letters to Werner von Braun after the war, asking him questions. Oh. Yeah, so that well, guy, it was before the war, though, right? It wasn't after the war, well, right? Maybe it was before. Yeah, maybe it was. But I think they met person to person somewhere because he was he was right there in Pasadena. If I I've got to go back and look at those facts, but 
No, I, I, you're, you're on track, though. You're definitely on track because they definitely have a strange relationship. And the one that I've never really been able to draw a great conclusion on how they met or when they met, but they had a, um, a pen pal um, situation going on for a while, for sure. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, there's just that that was like a nexus point for so much influence on 20th century was just Forrest Ackerman's science fiction club. That's how we probably, you know, that's how he got talent is people would come to the club and then he would go, hey, man, do you want me to publish that? And uh, I think Ackerman was very wealthy. I don't, I don't think he was hurting for money. No, no, it didn't seem to be. And, and uh, even though in his later years, I don't think he was that active in the production of things, but he's considered such a figure in their community and he had, I'm sure, rights to things, et cetera, that it wasn't really a, an issue for him. Yeah, pretty remarkable. It's it's interesting that no, I don't think many people have really keyed into him as such an important figure, maybe maybe within the film community, but... Not kind of a like right. a lower, larger cultural history. There are there are um, autobiograph I mean biographies about him, but I didn't see they didn't seem to be very substantial. Yeah, he definitely operated under the radar, and I think he enjoyed doing that. You know, there's obviously the people within that community. I think very well. He's very well known. You don't know anybody who you were to mention Forrest Ackerman to a science fiction fan or monster fan. You know, they would know who he is. I think. Because he he uh, he, yes, per, I mean, I even it was even into his elder age, he produced that Monsters of Science Fiction magazine or or newsletter, and he lived to the age of ninety two. So I mean, he had a right. you know a long time of uh, producing and publishing things. I think he did some writing himself, but yeah, he had that the, the mansion of his all of his little artifacts. So you know, the guy I don't think the guy was hard up for money, and you know, again. He may not be a well-known public figure, generally speaking, but he's certainly a well-known figure. Yeah, no question. No question. Is there any, I mean, we're, we've been talking about this for 45 minutes. Is there anything that you'd like to kind of finish up with or, or you'd like to, anything I missed or? I think we've done a good job, William, of uh, drawing the question marks that probably need some more uh, in, inspection regarding the uh kind of elements that we're dealing with today in some of these occult organizations and, and groups and people. But and the they, ideas. They clearly yeah. start yesterday. They clearly have been going on for a while as we've kind of drawn some of those lines here in this conversation. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I was kind of surprised to see all the occultism in Arthur C. Clark, the numerology that he knew. So these guys are probably cross-fertilizing their ideas from the occult. Oh, yeah. All mind control goes into their science fiction I mean, it's interesting. Clark was a science fiction writer, but he also came up with the idea of the satellite. So you can say all these satellites, satellites that are being put up yep. in space come back to Clark's paper on that, uh, the idea of yeah. a geosynchronous object flo floating over the Earth. I mean, so... Good, good point, good point. Yep. And just like a final note, one of my favorite short stories ever was written by Ray Bradbury. It's called uh, the, Sound, the Sound of Thunder. So if anybody out there has a chance and doesn't mind reading a short story, it's really good about going back in time. It's really an interesting story. Sound of Thunder. I will check that story out. I actually yeah, don't know that Ray Bradbury's story. I, I do appreciate Ray, Ray Bradbury's stories. I'm, not saying, I'm definitely not saying I haven't enjoyed the book Fahrenheit 451 before. I just question what a lot of these folks are doing in their off time and what they're putting into these storylines because, again, as we, we identified – uh, they have the uh, Amer U.S. military's experts in psychological warfare within this group.
So anything, anybody, do you have any social media people can reach out to you? Any, any online emails or sure um any folks of the interwebs that want to contact me uh challenge any of my statements or ask me further questions on these things or simply just want to have a conversation i can be reached at twitter at operation gcd and my website at www.operationgcd.com or on email at operationgcd at gmail.com that's g golf charlie delta Garbage can dude. Is 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 that uh, what GCD stands for? What's yeah, that that's what G. <laughs> My cynical nature of how I view the world. <laughs> Essentially. But okay, Valibus, thanks so much. We talked about Forrest Ackerman tonight, all of his interesting, strange connections, and I uh, really appreciate your time. Really interesting conversation. William, great talking to you again. Always, uh, always a nice time. Let me know anytime you want to have a conversation, and I will uh, make time. Sounds great, man. Great to talk with you. Take care. Have a great weekend. Yeah. Out here. Thank you. Okay.